When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. This season, we've asked our socios to choose their favourite interview from our archive. The big interview started in April 2015, and we've now done over 200 episodes to 8 million listens. Here's one of our socios explaining why the archive interview you're about to hear is their personal favourite. Hi, this is producer Martin. You're about to listen to an episode from the first season of The Big Interview. This one is the third episode we ever recorded back in 2015, and it's with Liverpool legend Jamie Carragher. Enjoy. Well, welcome back. Feels like we've never been apart. The reason that we began to do these podcasts, The Big Interview with me is football gives you a shot of adrenaline and happiness and does things that you can't understand time and time again it builds to climaxes that are as dramatic as anything that art theater opera ever invented one of the guys that we always aspired to talking to was jamie Carragher, and the reason is when you approach reporting on football for a living you can make a choice whether you want to appear cool and always in the right or whether you let your passion for the subject spill out at the risk of being maybe called naive or boyish but I like to approach my work with my heart on my sleeve open, honest and full of a passion for the subject That matched with Jamie, who played that way, who inspired me, who I loved watching learn and change. In this interview, he'll talk about how he rates his ability, what made him a player to lift four European trophies. He'll make me laugh, as I knew he would. We're going to go on. We're going to talk about Steven Gerrard, obviously, Alex Ferguson, Gary McAllister. We're going to talk about Istanbul. And today is the anniversary of Istanbul. Therefore, I give you one of the heroes of that night, one of the heroes of the most incredible football match you will ever see, Jamie Carragher. Jamie, welcome. Thanks for taking the time. No problem. Thank you, Graham. The joy of this is that I want to talk to people that I admire, people who have inspired me, but people who I suspect feel... The same childlike excitement for football. You never lose that adoration of football, its eccentricities, its skill, its stories. So, Istanbul, 10 years. Mm. Can't believe it. But you won the European Cup. You did what Liverpool players are supposed to do. You know, it was a fantastic thing. And I, and I went back and before we chatted, I looked. And you won four European trophies, 11 senior trophies at Liverpool and a youth FA Cup as well, which is a really 
really big trophy hall. Yet, I won't swear, but you lived in a time of Alex Ferguson. <coughs> you had to go up against him when his single motive to begin with was to knock Liverpool off its mm. effing perch and to make Manchester United great. Do you look back and think that he was a curse in my playing life? Have you found respect for him subsequent to your career? Could that have been 22 trophies or mm. 25 trophies if, no, if not for him? I've, I've got massive respect for Ferguson. I, I actually look at my career and, and think of the trophies that we won. Every player, no matter what he's won, will always say he wants more and I'm no different. Mm. I still think, did I do enough? Could I have done more? I should have done more. I should have done this, should have done that. But not even Ferguson. He's, let's... One of the greatest managers of all time. The greatest Manchester United manager there's ever been. I think that's right, even just surpassing to Matt Busby. But mm-hmm. we were up against Mourinho, one of the best managers of all time. Arsene Wenger, one of the best managers of all time. Especially in our game, in the British game, if you're thinking, well, certainly the top ten, if you're talking about the top five or six maybe managers to ever manage in our country, those three names have got a great shout of being in there. That's what we were up against at that time. So to actually look at what we come out with and what we won, trophies we won, Considering the competition at that time, I think I'm not lucky, but sort of proud of what we did, considering the competition. But in terms of Ferguson, no, I mean, I always got on brilliantly well with Alex Ferguson. I didn't know him that well, I must say. Two or three times we had words and tunnels at half-time, at the end of a game, both passionate about your team. But he written me a nice letter when I finished. So I, uh, I got his address off Michael Owen and uh, returned the favour, you know, written my letter back. And uh, I actually asked, could I, I meet, meet him, is probably the wrong way, but sort of have a, what we're doing now, have a football chat, chat. have a meal. Yeah. Listen, you're rivals, but any Liverpool fan or supporter who doesn't have respect for what he did and all his knowledge of football, that's just, that's just stupid. So, and he only lives half an hour down the road, he's only mentioned like he's at the other end of the world. So I went and met him, and had a couple of hours with him, had a meal with him, talking football, my experience at Liverpool, his Man United teams, how it started off. Uh, talking about players now, then, and and the one thing I took from it is memories. I mean, my memory is pretty good about football. Remembering games when I was a kid and games when I played. But I, I mentioned the game to him. I mean, I was an Everton fan as a kid, and I mentioned the game to him in 1987. I went to Old Trafford, and uh, Everton won the league that year, 87. And then the game finished nil nil. And I don't know how it would come up in conversation. But he told me a story about the game. I'm thinking, that's how long ago was that? He knew what system they played. He played three at the back. He had to pop up one of his players, and it was Graham Hogg, that he'd give the formation away in the paper the day before. And, you know, all I'm thinking, to remember that, the games he's been involved in, especially, no disrespect, that is, not an <laughs> ageism uh, slant on him, but the games he's been involved in, how old he was, to, to instantly know what had gone on a little bit in that game, I just thought it was fascinating. I know I don't look back at him and think, listen, who knows? I, I think I was fortunate to have Jared Hooley, Rafa Benitez, uh, Kenny Daglish, yes. Roy Evans. So I think, you know, whoever your manager is, but there's no doubt he had a massive impact on the uh, sort of situation with, with Liverpool and Manchester United. As I've listened to you, I don't know you very well, but in the times we've spoken, it's matched with what I saw when I watched you play. A fantastic ability to read the game, to inspire, to lead, to give the maximum that you had on any given day or any given season. And remember, I grew up in Aberdeen, so he did for my club and my mm. life what he then went on to do for... And it always struck me that you're one of the players. I know he wanted to sign Pepe Reina. He was very keen on Pepe Reina. One stage, didn't happen, whatever. You're one of the players I've always thought not only he'd have chosen if he could, but I suspect you'd have blossomed under that kind of mm. you know leader-captain relationship. 
Never happened, never going to happen. But it's the type of thing that... Well, he'd have to manage Liverpool. I wouldn't be playing for Man United, I'm sure you're that. I thought it must have been strange to watch him doing all those things and you think, geez, that's what we should have been doing here. Mm. You know, you had great managers. But he almost gutted the club and built the whole thing, the standards right everywhere. Mm. And that's maybe one of the things that I took from rereading your book, that you lived in a, at a time when you were, you know, you were blessed to played with some exceptional footballers and, you know, the impact of Julio to begin with and then Rafa and winning in Europe, all fantastic. But that comparison in overall standards mm. where things weren't maybe done correctly or the right attitude wasn't shown right around the club, that was a curse that you had to live with in your career at Liverpool. I love football and I always look at other managers and the managers mentioned before. I'd love to play under Ferguson, Mourinho, Wenger, these great managers you look at, Pep Guardiola. People sort of ask you what managers were like, different ones, strengths and weaknesses. Of course, they all have that. But I never, even when a manager didn't quite work out for Liverpool or it didn't go as well as we would have liked, I never said, oh, he was doing that wrong. I always took something from them. They're not idiots, these people. Every manager, I'd always take the good bits from it. People wouldn't say, oh, you take away the bad bits. They always learn something. There's always something they take different from the last fella or they saw something differently or, you know, different things. I was... I was a sponge with managers and why, things. Why, why did you have your mindset like that? To be honest, I, the club I was at, I mean, you see other clubs around the world and they talk about you know, players being maybe more powerful than a manager. You see that maybe in foreign clubs, maybe the big Spanish giants. But at Liverpool, the respect for the manager is probably bigger than maybe any other club in the world in terms of players and fans. But when Liverpool win, the fans, it's the manager. I think it starts with Shankly. It's, it was, OK, they've had great players, mm-hmm. but it, the fans, it's always... The respect for the manager at Liverpool, I think, is as big as anywhere. It's always, always flags of the managers mm-hmm. on the cop. You know, Shanks and, and, and the ones who won the European Cup, there's that flag. And there's great players who play in those teams. And maybe at other clubs, it's, it's about the player who won us the Europe. Whereas I think at Liverpool, it's the manager. So there was... I always think the manager's... 20, 30 years older than me, he's got more experience. I've never been a manager. I've never ever questioned a manager or said, Why are we doing this in training or why are we doing that? Or and I think it was it was funny. I think Benitez maybe was used to maybe players questioning, maybe a Valencia and different things. And when he first came, he sort of laughed at not laughed at us, but a bit everything he'd say we just do. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, he, and he said, I think in a training session he sort of we didn't know what he was doing, but it was a bit of a test. It might have been a day before the game. And he said, I want you to do this many runs and we just did it. Halfway through I think he said, No, why have you let me do that? A player abroad would say, But why would why would we do whereas I think the English mentality or my mentality is just the manager says you do that, you're doing it. It's it's a soldier's mentality. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're a warlike people. Yeah. And if your captain or your sergeant major says do something, mm. we, we do it. Mm. I think that's in our genes. Yeah, exactly. I honestly do. When he said that, he said, all right, lads, stop the exercise. The point wasn't to get you fit. The point was to say, you know, stuff it, Rafa. When he said that to you, were you stunned? That's Rafa, bizarre. Yeah, Rafa's the, the type of manager. It's all about football for him is the brain, and that suited me down to the ground. I mean, I, even though I was aggressive and I wasn't the biggest, I wasn't the strongest, I wasn't the quickest, my game was about being alive upstairs and, and reading things yeah. and situations, so I, I love working with him. What he was trying to point was trying to make is it was a way of him sort of saying you know use your brain think about what would you know that type of thing but it is the English mentality and, and, and even at times in those big games under Rafa you think of Istanbul you think of Cardiff twelve months later we never won that by sort of being clever that was hard really that was everything against what he's about but 
those type of games at times the emotion takes over, especially with Liverpool, the supporters, maybe myself and Stevie, you, you do get too emotional at times and and those games certainly were played with heart and not, not certainly how Rafa would have liked to have won them, but we did in the end. A win's a win and I wanted to go back to that as well because I'm a, I was born in Britain and I grew up, as I said, watching Alex Ferguson teams who did that mix you're talking about, which for Aberdeen it was about skill and, and tactics and breaks, but it was also always about heart. And when I kicked the ball at any level, it was about winning and any old how, really. Mm. And I moved to Spain to try and adapt and learn and grow up and see different things and teach myself. That was the principal reason. The training sessions, as a journalist, training sessions were open. Mm. That was about the dominant reason for me moving over there because I thought mm. I can watch training, I'll write better. And then... You know, I look at that Istanbul triumph and I look at one of the, the abiding British things was winning in adversity, winning from 3-0 down. But the thing I wanted to ask you about and focus on was winning when, you, when your muscles won't work anymore. Because mm. it's equally iconic, apart from your brilliant tackles, which I think were on Thomason and Shevchenko and whatever. There's a point which anybody who hasn't suffered cramp doesn't know that all this chat about childbirth is rubbish. Cramp, <laughs> cramp's a problem. You couldn't move. Mm. At a certain stage, you look like you're going up Everest without air. Mm. How did you get through it, and what was going on in your mind to dominate the situation? I, I wasn't even thinking about the cramp. My main thing was to get back on the pitch as soon as possible. When you're in that sort of zone, people are the crowd, it's like it's not there. It's playing the Champions League final for Liverpool. It's like you'd do anything not to sort of scupper the chance. I, I needed to get back onto that pitch to make it 11 v 11. The longer it's 10 v 11, they got an advantage of something. My first thought was, okay, stretch off, but there was never any thought that I would come off the pitch or I'd go. I never went onto the pitch worrying, is the cramp going to come back? It wasn't. You're just in a zone, I think, at that at that moment in, in a game of that magnitude. It's just, I need to get back on, I need to get back to my position. You know, I need to, we're playing a back three now, I need to get back to right centre back. Have you played physically more tired than that? The cramp was worse 12 months later in Cardiff against West Ham. We'd had a longer season. The day at Cardiff that day was so hot. And it wasn't just me that day. That was players on both teams all over the pitch. That was where I was feeling it a week later when I joined up with England for the World Cup. When you were training, just, they still didn't feel right. But when you play centre-back, you don't normally get cramp. It's not the position that you do that much running, to be honest. But no, in that game, a lot of it, I think, was stretching, clearing balls. The cramp was in my groin. Normally, you'll get cramp in your calf through mm-hmm. running. This was more, I think, stretching, trying to cut out crosses. Your focus is when you need to get back on this pitch. It's a mentality thing. It's were you talking? Can you remember if you were talking to the players around you while you were playing? After I'd come back on? Yeah. Just oh, yeah, yeah, I will have been. Oh, no doubt, yeah. Can you picture it? I can't, but I, I can't remember me going 10 seconds without saying a word on a football pitch without <laughs> organising or shouting at someone or geeing someone up. Yeah, oh, yeah, I'd have been. Yeah, I'd have been in there. At 3 3, can you remember what you were worried about, that what Milan had? Yeah, about them scoring another goal. It's strange, the mentality of football. You go from 3-1, 3-2, and you think, we've got to get a goal. As soon as you go 3-3, something comes, you think, oh, we've got something to lose now. <laughs> you have that mentality. It's like when a team are winning to another half-time. Why do the other team always come back into the game or put you under pressure? It just, it, just, it just happens. It's just, it's just the way it was. But I think what we put into those six minutes or the start of the second half, I think eventually sort of took its toll on us and we were playing against a team who were far better than us far better than us and then they changed it round a bit Rafa had to change it round a bit Serginio came on on the left because we had Smyser who was a number 10 if you like playing right wing back that's how the team had to be set up second half Stevie went there then so I think 
certainly in extra time, we were thinking penalties. If, if we get to penalties, we've, we've won the lottery. You know, we've, we've come back from 3-0 down, we're 3-3, we're hanging on against the best side in Europe, and it took everything. We had me making tackles, Jersey making unbelievable saves, Shevchenko missing an, an absolute sitter. But no, towards the end there, it was, it was get to extra time penalties. Before we start the tape, I told you that one of my favourite Monday Night Football discussions was you and Gary, September 2013, talking about David Luiz, Chelsea have just lost to Everton. Mm. And there's a really good philosophical debate about what should a defender in Premier League do? Should he defend? Can he come forward? Names like Baresi and PK are mentioned. It's a right good debate. Mm. But you're quite staunch about defenders defend. Mm. And defenders, you know, you shouldn't be one-on-one or going on a run or whatever. When the penalty was called in Istanbul, where were you on the pitch? I was on the edge of the box. I was in the box. You were? <laughs> I was a right centre-back stepping out with the ball, football and centre-back. Stepping out or driving right to yeah, the opposition yeah. box and sending off a nice little ball to Milan Barros, no? Yeah, yeah. That's in a back three, stepping what out. Happened? So slightly different. But yeah, I think I played the the ball into something. Did I get one, two? I, I think I played the ball, stepped out and played and, and did Barros flick it round the corner for Stevie? Yeah. You played the ball from about eight metres outside the penalty box, right in the Barros's feet, who yeah. lays it off to Stevie. Yeah. Before the tackle's gone in, there's a hand Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's I'm yours. There. I'm trying to get someone sent off, I think. What possessed you? I think, as I've knocked it into Barros, you know what, I think a lot of the, you're playing then, as I said before, on emotion. I'm not saying it was the wrong thing to do, stepping in. But the way we were playing, it was just like, so we're 3-2. So this is for the penalty to make it 3-3. So what I'm saying is, in them two minutes, everyone's just like, give me the ball. You bash it in, you're actually looking for the ball. I'm, I think I'm looking for the ball back off Barros, that's why I carry on my run. And he goes the, I go one way and Stevie goes the other, and he flicks it round the corner to Steve. So I think I just carry on my momentum. You'd have hit it. Oh, if, if yeah. he'd laid it. Yeah. Top, it's, top, it's top right now. or top left? It'd still be going where the Serginio's <laughs> penalty went, I think, in the shootout. But uh, no, I think you get caught up again with the emotion, the crowd. I'm not saying it was the wrong thing to do, but. More often than not, it's not something I would have done. But it's something you used to do as a kid. You know, you'd eight on your back at school. You mm. played striker, then you played creative midfield. Mm. You, you were digging into something that you knew you had. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think every footballer, whatever he plays, will always play centre forward or centre midfield when he's a kid. You know, for his uh, school team, Sunday team. So it's nice for that to come back in the middle of a European Cup final. <laughs> those memories. It reminded me that I had one of like glorious interview with Gary Mack about the Alibis game how chaotic and fun that was and what a fantastic team you had you were equally knackered in that one weren't you for a different reason oh, altogether yeah. I think we were gone physically and mentally in that game and we'd played Arsenal three days before and won a cup final from nowhere the heat was unbelievable that day at Cardiff again we'd won it late on and I always remember going to the UEFA Cup final on the coach and normally a cup final there's a bit of nerves there's a bit of tension mm. on the bus and I remember looking round, and it was like we were playing a normal game. Not that we weren't, we were just physically, even being in like the zone takes a, doesn't take a lot, but it's like everyone was just like, we were shattered. Played every cup game we could possibly play, we won the three cups, we ended up getting to the Champions League, which we did three days later, and we were awful. We beat Charlton away 4 0 the first half, which could have been 4 0 down, we were that. But Alaves, on a normal day, we'd have beat them 3 or 4 0. I, and I always remember the celebration afterwards with the Alaves game. And I always remember it was like the bath at the end of the game. It was more like a swimming pool. It wasn't a bath. And everyone was just sitting there without saying it. We just won the UEFA Cup. Everyone was just sat there. It was like... <laughs> it was so strange. I can picture it now because I thought, this is so strange. But I was part of it. You're just physically 
gone physically and mentally gone. Like he couldn't even celebrate. Mm. He just won one of the most, probably the most amazing UEFA Cup final of all time. Mm. We'd got the three trophies, the, the treble of the three cups, and we had a game three days later against Charlton. But I don't mean celebrate in terms of you know getting on the aisle or something when you went back to the hotel. But even just you, you see pictures, don't you? People laughing and joking in the bath, throwing a trophy around, or you know. Old-fashioned pictures, whereas we were just absolutely shattered. This is the joy of doing this because I've never heard anybody say that before. But you've immediately made me think. By sheer fluke, I was invited into the World Cup winning dressing room, and I came out telling friends, "I've seen our pub teams or some of the lunchtime teams celebrating an away win against Duffers mm. with more passion than the Spanish boys." A quick hooray, the Queen coming in, roughing it all in tears. Painted face, the lads posing with the cup, and then whew, like that, mm. flat, flat, not flat, unhappy, but like yeah. you said, no adrenaline, no leaping about. I think what happens is you, you have a lot of you celebrating on the pitch. What happens when you win a trophy? So I think sometimes that takes it, not takes it out of you, but you feel like you've done it. But certainly with that Alaves one, it was different to the others. You'd still, I can't remember getting pictures in the dressing room with the cup against Alaves. You the cup, whereas if you win the FA Cup or the yeah. Carlin Cup or the European Cup, you're still all. But that one was just like, thank God it's over. You see, that you, what I was meaning by that is that do you think that as fans we underestimate exactly how drained and exhausted a footballer can yeah, get? I think so. I think especially mentally, because physically, I think we probably all played football at different levels, and for us to get absolutely shattered at a different level to the the man on the street or the supporter, but maybe not. Understanding or getting the, the mental tiredness, which I think is more. Which affects your decision making. Yeah, of course, yeah. It's the build up to the game. It's how you're playing well yourself, or the team doing well. Have you made a mistake in the game? It's we have to win. The pressure of we're playing Alavés in the finals. Well, I don't forget we're expected to win mm. this comfortably. Can't lose because oh, it's Alavés. It's 4 4. Yeah. It's golden goal with a few minutes away from penalty shootout. It's, you know, it just. It does, it takes your time. Cup finals are normally the end of the season. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. 
When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. When you're watching Thornow with analysts' eyes, do you have to be careful? And what you'll say about what you've seen in a player because you're able to factor in maybe more things about why positionally they might be wrong or a pass has been misplaced or they put the ball over the bar when really they should have scored. Mm. Do you have to factor that in or if you factor that in or you're always going to sound too careful on the TV? I think basically us on the TV, we've, we've got to put ourselves in the position of the players where obviously me and Gary have probably have been there in different situations or scenarios because... You have so much experience at different games, big games, winning, losing. I think last year's game with Liverpool-Chelsea, we analysed the game on the Monday, where uh, Chelsea you know, stopped Liverpool winning the league. But it was more the fact of the second half, the effect mentally the first half had had on Liverpool's second half, so they were shooting and crossing from stupid areas. Now, more often than not, you'd pick that up if it was the middle of the season, just saying, stupid decisions... Why are they doing this? Why are they doing now? That's what we said, but you do factor in the fact it's desperation. Mm. It's not, you know, it's a mental thing. It's not something that they've been doing all season. That panic, that sort of mindset of oh, they think they're already thinking of what what we're going to lose, type of thing. And it's like you just do irrational things on a football pitch. It's a kind of fear. Oh yeah, yeah, that one was that game. I've played in games like that, of course. That's what I'm talking about the cup finals mm. with Rafa, where we played with the heart. It was that? It's a fear. How can we get beat to West Ham in a cup final? So, I mean, Stevie Gerrard scores the goal that makes it a 3-3. Greatest goal we've ever seen in a cup final. I'm on the edge of the box. I'm the centre-back. Why am I there? Do you know what I mean? Emotions take over. You find you're back to being a kid on the playground, running round. That's, that's what you like as a kid. And we took it into a big cup finals and won. One of the things I know is that you're a real... Maybe you always have been, but increasingly, maybe increasingly since you stopped playing, you're a real student of the game. I guess you are, but... When you're leading Liverpool, when you're, you're playing for top trophies, you focus on your working sphere. But you are a student and you learn and you go abroad and I've seen you interviewing Xavi in Las Rosas to Madrid, training ground and down with Xavi Alonso at Savinerstrasse in, in Munich. What has been the process of stopping playing and learning more in depth about some of the continental ideas and decision-making and attitudes that aren't about the things that we grow up with, which is heart and commitment physique and pace I'm not saying Britain hasn't produced players of brilliance and craft you know I'm not saying that for example the degree to which you admired Xavi was long term and it even overtook my admiration for him how do you see a blend between the players you admire from France Spain Italy and what we do naturally as as British athletes British players British coaches I think if you blended the two you'd have it's the perfect match you know, we talk about our passion, this and that. I think the thing I'd love to get to the bottom of, but that I can't quite put my finger on, is that I speak to foreign players, we watch the way they play. People say they're brought up differently, but we have then foreign coaches who come here who've coached these players. And then I watch Mourinho set a team up. I watch Capello. I've seen Ericsson. I've seen Benitez. I've seen Julier. 
they more British than the British managers. I had Brendan Rodgers, Roy Evans, Kenny Daglish. Two Liverpool legends, if you like, in the boot room yeah. way. Brendan Rodgers, whose influence you could say is maybe a Spanish influence, the way he plays. Yeah. They wanted me to play a lot more football than Rafa Benitez did and Gerard Houllier did. So then people always throw at us that, oh, the foreign managers or the foreign players, why do they play this and we do this and, and do that? But that's something I've got to get to the bottom of. I can't mm. quite work out. Did they come here and coach us a certain way because we were a certain type? And would Rafa Benitez coach differently in Spain? Or, or is just they're the type of managers we got? Mourinho's maybe the best foreign manager. You can't tell me he plays ticky-tacky football or... He doesn't, so that's something I... But what did Capello do when he got the England job? He played Heskey up front. Eriksson played Heskey up front. Julier buys Heskey. Benitez buys Crouch. If that was a British manager, they'd get absolutely battered for that. Then shoot me down. This is what it's always felt like living abroad for the last 14 years. You meet people of that generation, and what they've been influenced by is the same thing you and I were influenced by when we were growing up watching, say, Liverpool, like, we both kind of grew up in a Liverpool-dominant mm. era, me older mm. than you. And the impact that had on football thinking on the continent was absolutely gigantic. They were in a spell then of what I'm asking you now, but how do we do that? Mm. In those days in Spain when Liverpool were dominant in the 70s and 80s, the football wasn't as technical in Spain. That was growing somewhere mm. else. That was happening as a, okay. as a process of how they taught youngsters and what they wanted to emulate. Now, I can't speak directly for Capello, say. But Italian football and British football, I think, has probably had more in common about mm. structure and defence and organisation, not identical. But in Spain, Liverpool had an enormous impact on people's thinking. Mm. So I'm not blown away that Rafa brought things like that to mm. Anfield. He wanted to be part of the tradition. He wanted to write himself into that tradition, which is not a bad thing to want. But I go back to what I'm asking more about is, rather than the coaches, the players, because I think the players are different. Mm. My impression is that broadly, particularly Spain where I live, are producing players that are coaches on the pitch, probably more well, intelligent on the grass. Yeah, I, I, When people always say the foreign players are technically this better than us, now, as a whole I'd say yeah, but I've been with Alonso and Steven Gerrard. Alonso's not better technically than Steven Gerrard. Now, I'm not saying there's a competition between the two, but the best English players are technically very good. I think we're lacking a lot more in the understanding of the game. Mm. Massively in England, massively. I think we've got great technical players. So people may say, why don't we keep the ball? England are good technically to keep the ball in a tournament, but I think our understanding of which pass to play, do we keep the ball for keeping safe now to take this thing out of a game? Do we do that? As soon as a player comes into Liverpool, I can know straight away he's got a good understanding of football. I mean, I always read books, read magazines, think about the game. I was probably different to most English players where, without my sort of understanding of the game, I wouldn't have been a player. I'd have been maybe a player lower down or whatever. What My understanding of the game got me to the level I got. It wasn't me, me pace, it wasn't me strength, it wasn't me power, maybe it wasn't me technical ability. It was my understanding of the game. So I always like talking football. You can, if you speak to Alonso, you know, they understand things... Listen to some British players. You know, Stevie Gerrard understands the game. Danny Murphy is very good understanding the game. But a lot of them wouldn't watch football, didn't speak about football. You'd come in after a, a big game at the weekend. When I was playing a lot of the time, I'd be in Arsenal and United, both going for the title. If they played I me, mean, it was like you had to watch it. But you'd come in and some players wouldn't even know the game was on and things like that. So I think, 
how you possibly learn or improve as a player yourself without? But I think that comes from maybe even being. I loved the game as a kid, but I was always interested in you know what other people thought, how they saw the game. I think the big thing now is with coaches is is it how you play or is it just about results? That's always a mm-hmm. that certain yeah. cultures fall yeah. I think at times into two different categories. That's a, a debate in itself. But uh, there's no doubt with foreign players, I think their understanding of what to do. Like I was watching the Europa League semi-final, Napoli played Dnipro yeah. midweek, and I, I was watching the last 20 minutes, and uh, just watching Dnipro play, so Napoli needed the goal to go through, Napoli never looked like scoring, but Dnipro just just knew what to do, how to kill time, slow the game down, centre forward getting a free kick, that's a big thing for me, what, what winds me up in football when I'm analysing I think they call it now game management. That's what the coaches call it. Understanding what to do. There's no right or wrong how you play. I don't think everyone has their own style. It's about being successful at it. But understanding what to do if it's nil-nil, if you're winning two-nil, if you're getting beat, if it's nearly half-time, it's the start of a game. A perfect example is uh, one of my last years I was playing at Chelsea away. We're 1-1. About 15 minutes to go. And we got a throw-in in our half, midway in our half. And one of our defenders is sprinting to get the ball. And I'm screaming, I'm slow down. But the understanding of not knowing that you need to... You're away at Chelsea. If you're playing bottom of the league, 1-1's not... You're away from home, 1-1's not a great result if you're away to the bottom team. So sprint and get the ball, we need to win. Away at Chelsea, 1-1's okay. Last little section, I want to question you again about something that has been a bugbear of mine and of yours at Liverpool, which is the whole idea of recruitment, how you recruit players. And there's a couple of anecdotes in your book about Stan Collymore and they haven't researched where he wants to mm-hmm. live and so on. And then there's all the way through players who weren't good enough to play for Liverpool who were signed up to today with Balotelli who hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. And then you get your club selling Luis Suarez who's had one of the most controversial times in Britain come to the city where I work and he's about to win the treble. But if you took a look at recruiting that player based on his actions at Ajax, you, you probably shouldn't. Mm-hmm. What is recruitment of players like from the inside in your experience? Well, in terms of a manager speaking to you about players, it's normally on international duty. Because a lot of fans, I'm sure the, the clubs go into a lot more detail, but you'll see someone on match of the day or a goal, so you think, oh, he'd do, he do for us. It's not until you've got that place and we do every single day travelling, what's he like as, as a, a team member, a squad member, what's he like around the place, it's not just the ability on the pitch Craig Bellamy's a good one similar to Suarez where you'll hear reports of people saying bad apple, don't go near him but I always look at it at training and playing off the pitch, if someone is a bad ego gets into trouble now again, you've got to balance out what they're giving you on the pitch mm. I call someone a bad egg when he doesn't train properly he doesn't try in a game. Bellamy's a warrior every day in training. Mm. Trains, goes in the gym an hour before. Yeah, he's got a mouth on him and he'll question a manager and he'll have an outburst now and again. But if I was a coach or a manager, the thought of trying to get someone to train every day or give 100%, whereas Bellamy's interested in football. Suarez wants to train every single day as an animal, wants to play like his life depends on it. They're the people you want in your squad. You'd want them without the things they bring with it, of course. But I'd much rather have someone like that than someone, as you mentioned before, like Balotelli, who you're struggling to get on the pitch. You know, that's, that, that's what I want, you know, warriors in your team. Now, 
it's easy for me to say I've never bought a player as a manager and every manager makes mistakes in the market I think it's probably the most difficult thing as a manager to get people in get the right characters in people always say oh we'll scout them properly we'll, we'll speak to the manager who's had them before this mm. everyone sees things differently yeah. you know everyone I might have just said that about Craig Bellamy but you might ask Graeme Sunesh who's managed we might go oh no not a chance it, yeah. there's no that's why I sometimes think in recruitment there's that many people involved in it now it's like I always think if it, you know you have a scout he goes and watches a play and he said he did this well he did that well but I might be a different I might not think he did that well I might think mm. that was wrong do you know what I mean it's I do know you've, you've, beauty's in the eye of the beholder and what are you originally looking for how good is your eye how good are your contacts I, I, I suppose that comes from trust you wouldn't have someone working with you looking for players if you weren't on the same sort of wavelength I get that but I always think I'd have to I feel like I'd have to see everything I read, I think it was in Michael Calvin's book, that there's a guy, Barry Hunter was at Liverpool, I think, a scout. Yeah, right? yeah. And there was an anecdote about they wanted Alexis Sanchez. Mm. And they followed him for three days. Cafes, restaurants. What does he drink? Does he drink coffee or water or wine? Or what? It's probably why he sat for us. They're getting followed. <laughs> so it didn't come to the perfect conclusion. Okay, point made, which only adds to the fact recruitment's not easy. But I, I look at that and listen to what you say about depth of understanding of a player's personality and behaviour and training and that. And I look at all the stats you get about fitness and position and possession. There's so much of a microscope on all of that. And it's kind of as if there's a little bit forgotten about how to put that kind of microscope on the guy who's going to mm-hmm. produce you all these stats and win you the trophies and have the heart. Mm-hmm. To keep fighting on or to, to lead. There must be a way to understand people better. Mm. Do you not think? Character. Yeah, there is. I mean, I, I, I remember speaking to uh, Clive Woodward a while ago about like, player profiling. Mm-hmm. I remember right I'm sure he got players, even though he wasn't buying them, when they come into the England squad, he profiled them sort of like, you'd have to answer questions. And maybe I don't know if a player would appreciate that or not, and you get the answer of what type of character he was. And he... I think he was just trying to get into football at the time and he was saying, I, I can't believe profiling's not a massive part of who mm. you sign and does this player profile go with the one I've already got to make sort of the balance of a team? I think that's something he did with the England squad when trying to integrate new players in there. I thought that was interesting. I'd never really heard it spoken about like that before. I think a lot of managers now and coaches, you think of the money that you're spending on these players... It might be worth it, might you just get into filling a form, I think. We'll close on, on this theme now with just a hope, fingers crossed, a piece of mutual admiration for somebody I adore. The strangest signing in your time at Liverpool has to have been the guy who the manager six months before picked out in a video and said he's the weakness, and who was 35 and had played centre midfield for, I think, Leicester yeah, at the time. Yeah, Coventry. And yet, Coventry, and yet came in and just yeah. played like a genius. Gary McAllister. Yeah. Give me a bit of McAllister yeah, in my life, well, please. I, I do remember the meeting because I was playing midfield at that time under Gerard Hulier. And Gerard Hulier's meetings were, were very good in terms of motivating you, pumping you for a game. And I, I remember him said to me, you're up against McAllister today. You're a petrol car. He's a diesel. I always remember that, you know, because of his age. What an inspired signing by the manager. I don't think anyone could really believer at the time I think they saw him as a, a father figure to sort of Stevie in terms of he mightn't play so much he may play because Jamie Redknapp had a bad injury at the time mm. so maybe he didn't want to spend big money on someone because Jamie may come back he got Steven Gerrard so okay a bit of a mentor for Stevie Sim- you know the attacking central midfield position but he come in and played that well at Stevie found himself at right midfield right back 
because playing Gary. Well. Yeah, exactly. I'm playing alongside him. Obviously, the first half of the season, I think, was unfortunate with, with his wife's passing, so he didn't play. I think so much in that first half of the season, but the second half of the season, the running, he's remembered most by Liverpool supporters for his winning goal. At Goodison, the, the Gary McDarby, it's affectionately now called. And if I had to pick one moment from Derby games, that'd be that. Hmm. Seeing him put that, couldn't believe he was going to shoot from there. But he kidded the keeper, Gerard, and we've, we scored. But along that sort of path, the amount of set pieces he scored, and he got one at Coventry, he got one at Bradford away. And also the amount of set pieces that team scored. He was brilliant at finding someone at the near post flick on. Arsenal were famous for it. But his delivery of a little, little dink to that near post flick on and getting goals from it. But I think a big blow to him towards the end of the season, the cup final. Not playing. Not playing, yeah, against Arsenal. And I can totally understand, I probably think it was the right decision, even though he did come on and change the game. But Patrick Vieira at that time was a monster, and we needed Stevie in the middle just for that extra power and pace. But Stevie will tell you himself, he couldn't handle him that day. I mean, that's a game Stephen Gerrard looks back on and thinks, big learning curve for me, that I thought I was there. Vieira showed me there's another level to go, which he eventually got, and in my opinion, I think surpassed. But in terms of uh, Gary McAllister, he never played that game, but he was in three days later. Steve Against Alaves. Exactly. They, I think he was man of the match that game, didn't he? He was, and yeah, he, he maybe put the ball. Yeah, it was his. He, he got the, the goal or the assist, if you like. The, the golden one, assist. The golden, yeah. I think Johan Cruyff may have presented him with the man of the match trophy Ooh, not afterwards. Not the worst moment in your life if that happens to you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, his son was playing for Alaves, wasn't yeah. he, Jordi Cruyff, yeah, Jordi, that day? Yeah. I think for Gary McAllister, I think to leave Coventry and go to Liverpool, I think even Gordon Strachan was the manager then at Coventry, I think was saying to him, you won't play, stay here, you play every week. But I think for him to sort of finish his career, I mean, he played for us for a while longer and then went back to Coventry. I don't know if it was player manager or just manager, but... I think for him to finish his, he'd had a great career, but never maybe won the those type of honours that he won the you know, European trophy, scoring the winner against Barcelona. I forgot to mention that against Pepe Reina penalty. You know, ha, so have you mentioned that to Pepe in the past? Oh yeah, he had yeah. hair then. <laughs> yeah, oh I no, but it was he was a young kid then. That's at Anfield after a nil nil at the Catalan. There's, there's a wonderful picture which I've seen a lot of in the Catalan media of a young Stephen Gerrard running up and screaming in Pep Guardiola's face. At the end of the match, as it, I seen that yesterday. I no way. He, was he trying to shake hands with him, or was he in his mind? <laughs> <laughs> if that's what you want to call, yeah. yeah. That's a scouse and Peps, that. Peps, Peps, Saturnine. There's a black cloud over yeah. Peps' head. Yeah. Of course, yeah. It's, it turns out to be his last ever UEFA game for Barcelona. Oh, okay. But the, and just, you know the passion in Stevie and yeah. Pep and the iconic photo. Yeah. Unbelievable, and all thanks to Gary Mack. Of course. Listen, we've finished admiring somebody's talent and uh, laughing. That seems like a good point to stop, because that's what football does. Jamie, an honour, a pleasure. It's good talking to you as it was watching you play. Thank you. Thanks, Graham. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for season 2018-19. We've got huge creative plans for the months ahead, but we do need your help to make them happen. Please go right now to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and become a socio, become a paying member and get an extra big interview every month plus loads of bonus content. Last season, socios listened to nine exclusive big interviews including Rafa van der Vaart, Troy Deeney, Roberto Di Matteo and loads of me talking about football. The Premier League, the Champions League, Spanish football. 
I'm sure they enjoyed it and you will too. Support us, join us. Thank you.